Good morning. My name is Art Cash, discipleship pastor here at River Oaks, and it is my privilege to be in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18 with you today. So as, as a trainer with Ruby Tuesday, for over 13 years, we, we had a saying when we really needed our audience to, to take away a key idea that we were teaching them. We would say, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Repetition aids retention. In our passage today in Acts 11, 1 through 18, we'll be, we'll be covering the account of Peter and Cornelius for the third time. So in the, in the movie Groundhog Day, if anybody's seen that, we're going back a while. It's like early 90s, okay? We've got Phil Connors, who is played by, by Bill Murray, and he's destined to repeat the same 24 hours over and over and over until he learns to not be selfish. So one blogger, because I guess he had nothing better to do, figured out the timing on this, that uh, Bill Murray's character spent Groundhog Day, spent that day over and over eight years, eight months, and 16 days on repeat with the same day. So before you check out, you start Googling how to learn French while your pastor preaches, okay? <laughs> before you check out, due to the repetition here, we, we've got to ask the question, Why? Why, why does Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, want us to hear the story of the Gentiles being included into God's redemptive plans three times? We'll answer that question in our text, but as we approach this account, that question of repetition, that, that should instruct our whole approach to Scripture. When God tells us anything at all in His Word, we should listen, right? When he tells us something twice, he should have our full attention. When he tells us something three times, he really wants us to understand it, absorb it, and believe what he's telling us. Our actions flow from our beliefs. So right out of the gate this morning, what, what is it that you need to hear? What, what truth do you need to be told? What command do you need to hear over and over to keep believing and obeying. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Be angry and do not sin. Speak the truth in love. All the above for me. So the kindness of, of God repeating himself because he knows that we need it. That's only part of the emphasis this morning. There's a reason that God repeats the account of the inclusion of the Gentiles into salvation. God emphasizes this truth because he knew the hearts of the early Jewish believers. They would resist it. They wouldn't accept it. So we begin to see that resistance in the criticism that Peter receives in our passage. And how Peter responds is the main point of our sermon this morning. When you are criticized for sharing Jesus, respond by telling the truth and God will be glorified. Let's see it from God's word in Acts 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. 
I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were uh, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he'd seen the angels stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Father, we pray that you would bless your word, that you would open our ears and our hearts to the truth of it. Help us see more clearly Jesus this morning. In his name we pray, amen. So you can see how we will move right through the the passage, basically breaking down the, the main point. When criticism comes... We tell the truth, and God is glorified. So when we see in, in verse 1 that the Gentiles receive the word, that's, that's a positive situation. The Gentiles, that means that they, they heard the gospel and they believed it. This is amazingly good news. We've got Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. We've got the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his resurrection, the presence of the Spirit, all being applied to the Gentiles. The news of what happened with Cornelius, it makes it back to the apostles, back to the church in Jerusalem before Peter does. Now, we might expect that the news of the spread of the gospel would be met with joy, with celebration. But that's not what happens in verse 2. There we see that that Peter is criticized by the circumcision party. They They don't mince words. Criticize here means to dispute to contend against, to oppose. They're criticizing him for eating with, fellowshipping with, going into a Gentile home. So immediately we can see two principles on how as Christians we might respond to criticism. How we respond is due in part to who is doing the criticizing. And what are they saying? What's the nature of their criticism? A good question to ask when you're criticized because of Jesus is, do I have to respond? I mean, we, we think about this, we're, we're, we're scrolling, and there's a rando on Facebook who says, hey, you actually worship a flying spaghetti monster. Are you required to respond? No, <laughs> you're not. One way we determine 
how we respond to criticism is by asking who's doing it. And this criticism is, is inside the church. We'll, we'll make that case in just a second. So when we receive criticism inside the church, I'm asking myself, do, does this person who's criticizing me, do they love the Lord? Do, do they love me? What, what's the motive there? Do they also spend time encouraging me as well as offering criticism? Do I trust them? So who is this? Who's this circumcision party? Again, we, we read about them in uh, verse 3 here. Verse 2, rather. Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcision party criticized him. Who is this group? And we may think of the legalistic Jews who oppose Paul wherever he goes as he spreads the gospel and plants churches. But the group criticizing Peter is not that group yet. I'd I'd submit to you they're likely conscientious Hebrew believers. They're serious about the Mosaic law. They're serious about the covenant. They want to honor it. Maybe you could think of them like the the weaker brother in, in Romans 14. An immature believer who overreacts before he has all the facts. I'm basing that they're believers on their ultimate response. Once they learn the truth about what happened with the Gentiles, they respond rightly. They show they're able to be corrected with the truth. In verse 18, they listen to Peter. They fall silent, and then they glorify God because the Gentiles have been given the gift of repentance that leads to life. That response, that's a believer's response. So, we can, we can even learn from their response. When we offer criticism, before we do, have we considered that, that we may not have all the facts? That makes a difference. Once we get those facts, how do we respond? Are we, are we teachable? Are we humble? So who's doing the criticism? What is the nature of it? What's the nature of the circumcision party's criticism? We look carefully at 2 and 3. We see it's, it's not that the Gentiles have received the word of God and believed it, but that Peter went into a Gentile home, fellowshiped, and ate with them. So, so put yourself in, in, their, in Peter's shoes for just a minute. This, this would be like you are so pumped because you shared Jesus with an unbelieving friend, okay? And then they accept Jesus, and, and a friend comes up to you that's a fellow believer and says, now, now, hold on a second. You guys ate what? While you were talking about Jesus, there, there was a, a beer involved? Are you kidding me? At least tell me. At least tell me that you, you got them to admit that they're totally depraved, that they were unconditionally elected. I'm sure you didn't have time to get the irresistible grace, but tell me you did not lead them in a sinner's prayer. <laughs> How would you respond to that critique? You just shared Jesus, and somebody's coming from the top rope saying... Why'd you do it that way? How would you respond? How does Peter react? His critics' priorities are in the wrong place. And we can learn as much from Peter what he does not do as what he does do. Peter is experiencing something that's common to all of us, criticism. Think of the escalation, though. How do you react when you're criticized? Now, escalate a little bit. How does that change when you're criticized unjustly because you were doing something right? Now, how about when you're criticized for, of all things, 
sharing the good news of Jesus. How would you respond? How would you react? Peter can help us here. He does not get defensive. He does not appeal to his own authority. How easy would it have been for Peter to to step back a little bit, even probably cock his head and go, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know? I am an apostle. They call me the rock. Oh, no. No, that's not what he does. Instead of appealing to his own authority, his own name or reputation, he appeals to God's authority. And he humbly tells the truth about what God has done. Peter does not respond in anger. What an enormous temptation for us, or at least for the the folks standing back here. Okay, What an enormous temptation when you're criticized to respond in anger. This this criticism, it's coming from inside the church, from fellow believers. So it's tempting to, to react angrily when you're trying to serve the body of Christ and somebody criticizes you for it. Now, that may not escalate straight to DEFCON 4 and you're going nuclear on somebody. It could just look like sarcasm. It could be sarcasm. Well, I like the way that I'm serving a lot better than the way you're just sitting there. Be aware of that. Be aware of anger coming out as sarcasm. Anger can, can look like self-inflicted, lonely self-pity. We get criticized and all of a sudden we picture ourselves as the hero of our own plight. It's just us and Elijah against all the Baal worshipers. Just me against my critics. Be aware of that. When we face criticism from fellow believers, how easy is it to assume the worst of their motives? They're, they're attacking me? How, how, how dare they? We're assuming their worst motives. But Peter here is assuming the best about his critics that the situation will allow. Why? Because his motive is not to prove them wrong or himself right, but rather to tell them the truth about what God has done so he gets the glory for saving Gentiles. That's his motive. So Peter does respond with patience. Holy Spirit, we need your help. This is a different Peter. This is not rebuking Jesus, Peter. You can't wash my feet, Peter. Cut off the servant's ear, Peter. Scared of a slave girl, Peter. Here's a man who's being matured by the Holy Spirit and whose theology informs his actions. He's being changed. We see it. Peter has received so much patience from Jesus. There's so many reasons that that, that Peter was put in Scripture, but I think one of the main ones is is to encourage us that if he showed Peter patience, man, he's showing it to us. Every day he shows us patience, especially when Peter didn't have all the facts, which kind of seems like most of the time with him. So what he's received much, he gives much. Peter's being patient with these new believers because they don't have the full story yet. For us, how how much more encouraging would our interactions be if we waited until we had all the facts to see if criticism was even warranted? Or if the times where we're criticizing, would encouragement work better? Or if we're, we're on the receiving end of criticism to patiently assume the best about our critic? 
I know what I'm suggesting to you is hard. Actually, it's impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit in you. What if we were motivated less by defending ourselves and more about telling the truth so that God gets the glory? And that's what we see Peter do in verse 4. He responds by telling the truth. I I like how the, the NLT puts it. They criticize him. Then Peter tells him exactly what happened. He tells the truth. So we know what happened with Peter, Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit from chapter 10. I want us to see how Peter organizes this truth. We can learn again from what he does not do. He does not paint the situation to, look, to make himself look better. He doesn't do that. He does not tell his critics what he thinks they want to hear. He doesn't do that. Peter's not trying to win an argument. He wants his critics to actually understand what happened. He believes the truth will persuade them towards one ironclad fact. God did this. Peter's not the hero of the situation. He's not the villain of the situation. God is the hero of the situation. He did it. He orchestrated this entire series of events. Look at verse 5. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Peter's praying. This this is no small detail. Through, Through prayer, God cultivates in us a deeper dependence on him. So so Peter's posture right here is already of one who's ready to listen and to obey God. Peter then shares the vision the Lord gave him of of the sheet descending from heaven with unclean food in it. He explains that he heard God's voice commanding him to, to not call common what God has declared clean. He makes a specific point in verse 10 to share that this happened three times. Now, anyone who is is listening to this, who's listening to, to Peter explain this, they might have started smiling at this point because this is, this is a subtle nugget of authenticity. If they know Peter and they know his story, they know that it often takes the Lord telling Peter three times to get something. So thank God for Peter and thank God for his kindness in, in leading us in ways that we can understand even when we can be a bit slow on the uptake. So in verse 12, Peter shares how God brought messengers from Cornelius and God provided Peter with with six fellow Jewish believers as witnesses who can back up everything he's saying. You can see God's providence. He's orchestrated all of it. Here's here's Peter's care for his critics in, in verse 12. And the Spirit told me to go with them talking about the the messengers from Caesarea, the Gentiles. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. He's showing care here because he's addressing the main concern his critics have. He's not avoiding it. He's leaning right into the teeth of it. Why did he go into a Gentile home? Because in verse 12, the Holy Spirit told him to go, making no distinction. This this phrase, make no distinction, it means the Holy Spirit told Peter not to discriminate, to go with the Gentiles without any misgivings, to not worry about it. This is brand new information for Peter's critics. 
God commanded Peter to do the exact thing for which they are criticizing him. In their minds, they had to be asking, why would, this, this goes against the ceremonial law, why, why would God have them do this? Why would, why would he tell Peter to do this? Peter tells him why in verses 13 and 14. An angel told Cornelius that Peter was to bring them news of how he and his whole household could be saved. It's a matter of salvation. Peter's obedience to go into Cornelius' home was, was not only the, the beginning of fulfilled prophecy, it was a matter of eternal life and death. You see, Cornelius may have been approved by God based on his prayers and his generosity back in chapter 10, verse 4. But Cornelius was not saved until he heard the gospel and was saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. How can they argue with that? So Peter keeps closing the case here that God ordained these events by not only explaining that he was led by the Spirit in verse 12, but also confirmed by the Spirit and the word of the Lord in verses 15 and 16. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. He wants them to see the connection to Pentecost. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit tells Peter to go with the Gentiles. Then the Holy Spirit comes to the Gentiles just as he did for the Jewish believers in Acts 2. Same Spirit. The Spirit leads and the Spirit confirms by taking action. In verse 16, Peter recalls the words of Jesus all the way back in Acts 1.5. That's what he's quoting there. And the way that Peter describes that as the word of the Lord helps us understand that Peter is recalling Scripture. There's so many rich takeaways for us here on, on how to truthfully respond when we're being criticized for sharing Jesus, from our need to humble ourselves and pray, from our need to obey God's commands, to being led by the Spirit. So when we're being criticized, how can we know if we're actually being led by the Spirit? This, this phrase, right, it's, it's, it's so common for us to, to say or to hear that I, I was led by the Spirit. When we find that phrase in, in Scripture, Romans 8 and Galatians 5, brothers and sisters, it's always in the context of being led by the Spirit to put sin to death and that the Spirit is growing in us fruits of the Spirit, cultivating in us an affection for Christ so one explicit way you can know you're being led by the Spirit is when you turn away from sins that tempt you, when you have experienced times of growing affection, warmth, when you see Jesus in a new light, when you see him as more glorious because you've been in his word, you are being led by the Spirit. But those things, that's, that's not likely to lead to, to criticism, Right? So, so at times when we say that we're led by the Spirit, we mean we experience conviction. We felt compelled by God to speak or take action in a particular situation. We need the Spirit to examine us here, and Peter's actions inform us here. If we're honest, 
we can use the phrase sometimes led by the Spirit to essentially be kind of a holy cover for doing what we want to do anyway. I, I know you needed help moving Saturday, but I really felt led by the Spirit to engage in a period of rest. <laughs> so, so I slept in. Um, this, this, is, this is possible. If we're honest, that can be a little bit of a, of a, of a cover at times. We must be aware that if the, if the Holy Spirit that we're hearing from never challenges us, always affirms us, and lines up with what we want to do anyway, we're, we're not hearing from the Holy Spirit. We're, we're hearing from ourselves. Peter's example helps us see this clearly. He's being told by the Spirit to do what? Something he does not want to do. That's what he's being told to do. He's being told to go into a Gentile's house for the sake of spreading the gospel, even though he'll be criticized for it. So you can be sure that if you're being prompted to reach out to someone and you don't want to, to try and step in and and bring peace in a conflict, even though it will take time and effort and be messy, prompted to share the gospel with someone, even though you are afraid, even though you are so far out of your comfort zone, have complete confidence that that's the Holy Spirit leading you to do that. We can continue to apply this, what we see here with Peter, because he's he's also confirmed by the way that the Holy Spirit acts. He, He falls on the Gentiles, and he's prompted to remember the word of God, the words of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will never lead you to do something that is in contradiction to his word. So because Peter knows this whole situation was ordained by God and led by his spirit, he can stand before his critics with confidence. He can tell the truth about what happened with the Gentiles. So then how does, how does Peter close? his appeal. How did his critics respond? We see in 17 and 18, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to to life. God has given the Gentiles a gift, the same gift that he'd given the Jewish believers. The Gentiles are to be included in salvation. There's no way that that Peter, Cornelius, the circumcision party, they can't know yet just how much they are a part of God's story of redemption. They are participants in and witnesses to the Father's eternal plan of redemption to save a people through His Son and seal that people by His Holy Spirit. A people that now includes the Gentiles. A people that includes you and me sitting here. Their inclusion means our inclusion. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, Ephesians 3, 6. God's gift of inclusion, it's completely unlike what the world means by it. The world defines inclusion as accepted as you are, no matter what you do, as long as it doesn't harm someone else. What Scripture means by inclusion is you are accepted by the Father only by faith in Christ, 
This is an exclusive inclusivity. Gentiles are absolutely included, but it is exclusively through faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one way to the Father, and it's through the name of Jesus Christ. The world hates this message, but it's life to the Christian. If you were here today and you don't know Jesus, and I'm pleading with you, you you could be given the gift today of repentance that leads to life. Confess your sins. Confess your dependence on yourself, your your worship of the things that that make you happy, and turn to Jesus in saving faith. Peter asks a question. Who could stand in the way of God? Really, meaning who was he to stand in the way of God who's given to the Gentiles faith? repentance, and the Holy Spirit, everything needed for salvation. And that's the right way to frame the question, who was I to stand in the way of what God's doing? It's a great question. Who would get in the way of that indeed? Who was anyone to put anything in the way of Gentiles coming to Christ? But if you know Peter and you know yourself, the old man dies hard. The war against the sinful nature rages on. Think about this. Here's what Peter is involved in. He obeyed God. He he took the gospel to the Gentiles. And then he told the truth about it. He watched his critics fall silent and glorify God over this truth. Yet even after that victory, after watching God work, Peter caves He gives in to fear. He goes down the road of old sinful prejudices. We know this from Galatians 2, that when Peter came to Antioch, Paul publicly confronted him to his face. What was the issue? Well, Peter had been eating with the Gentiles, but when men from the circumcision party, perhaps some of these same men, show up, Peter withdrew and separated himself from Gentile believers. Peter even led Barnabas astray with his hypocrisy. Paul calls what Peter did conduct that was not in step with the truth of the gospel. In other words, Peter found himself standing in God's way. Thankfully, Peter did what Christians are supposed to do when a brother confronts his sin. Peter must have seen his hypocrisy and repented As many years later, Peter describes Paul as our beloved brother and calls Paul's writings scripture in 2 Peter 3. That would have included the letter to the Galatians where Paul calls Peter out. What the circumcision party will eventually demand is that Gentiles must first become Jews to become Christians Essentially, this is the beginning of of what we call legalism. Jesus plus something equals salvation. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus works. Jesus plus Jewish traditions. But much of the New Testament, including this passage, shows us that the work of Christ is more than sufficient to unite the Jew and the Gentile in him through the cross, making one new humanity. The Christian. Now I want you to think of that truth and that hope and that message compared to 
the message of the world right now. The message of Scripture is that the sinner can be reconciled with the Father through the Son, male or female, young or old, black or white, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile. God is impartial to all of those who repent and place their faith in Jesus. How counter is that truth to the culture right now? Everyone from celebrities to our own government seem bent on dividing people up by skin color and encouraging us to judge and be suspicious of each other. Brothers and sisters, as a church, as as the new humanity that Christ died to create from every tribe, tongue, and nation, we must not, we cannot be a part of that division. Because of sin, there will always be people who will attempt to add to salvation by preaching that one ethnicity is superior to another or by preaching that additional penance is required because of your race It comes down to this. Either the work of Christ was sufficient for the forgiveness of every believer's sin, or it wasn't. Either Christ, when he said, it's finished, meant it, or he didn't. By the Holy Spirit, we must be convinced that God's word is true. And what Jesus Christ has done to reconcile us to himself and to each other is complete. If those who preach additional works adding to salvation along the lines of ethnicity or penance, that that can somehow add to Christ's work, they are not keeping in step with the gospel. If they claim to be believers, we need to confront them to their face and pray for their repentance. We need to tell the truth, and God will be glorified. To tell the truth in a way that brings God glory, it will take discernment and compassion for the Christian. Those two actions should should never be at odds. It it takes a work of the Spirit to keep righteous anger from becoming self-righteous indignation. It is a right and good thing to be discerning. Discernment is one of the main issues we'll discuss in our training weekend that's coming up uh, later in May on justice and race. But just recognizing empty philosophies, empty gospels like critical race theory, that doesn't make us more like Christ. This is where we must have the Spirit and the Word to help us with the both and of Christianity. Brothers and sisters, rage is easy. That's easy. Loving your enemy, that's being led by the Spirit. We are to call evil, evil, and good, good. But what separates our response from our opponents is we are called to love our enemy, not return evil for evil. There's a slow, slow progress here. We we live in a day and age where we can scroll through Twitter and and Facebook and Instagram and, and slowly be exposed to everything that disgusts us and What starts as discernment, that's not right, becomes irritation, becomes, I can't stand this, becomes, I I hate what I'm seeing. That's not our call as, as Christians. We can say to someone, you are completely wrong, and be brokenhearted over their sin rather than self congratulatory that we're so right and they're so stupid. That's not our call. 
May God continue to repeat in our minds and hearts, maybe more than three times, that those who stand against objective truth, they can still be saved and they are still image bearers. Brothers and sisters, we have more than a message of we are right and you are wrong. We have a message that at one time we were all wrong. We were all unclean. There were none of us that were righteous, not one. We were all separated from God by our sin, but Jesus took that sin. He took our wrongness and he nailed it to the cross. That's our message. That's a message of hope, not division. That is a message of joy, not despair. We have more than a message of you should think and act like I do, but one of you can have everlasting joy, hope, and reconciliation with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So how did the critics respond in verse 18? Let's let's see it one more time. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The critics get it right. They get it right. They hear the truth. They fall silent. They glorify God by showing they understand and accept what's happened. They articulate truth to each other. The Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. In his book, Doctrine of Repentance, Puritan Thomas Watson writes, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Repentance is a gift from God. So then that impacts us in how we go about our discussions or disagreements with unbelievers regarding truth. It it won't be our anger, our stats, or our stories that ultimately lead someone to see their guilt in opposition to God. God may use us, but he will be the one leading them to repentance. The servant of God is to correct his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 2, 25, God is glorified when critics are silenced by his truth and when sinners repent and turn to him in saving faith. What's in view in 1118 is repentance that leads to eternal life. Despite Peter's reluctance and the circumcision party's resistance, God has had his way in bringing the Gentiles into his covenant people through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, at the heart of sharing Jesus and telling the truth is not to just win someone over to our way of thinking and living. Rather, it's about the glory of God and worshiping him forever. So so the truths that the Peter's critics are proclaiming temporarily and only in part, those truths will one day reverberate in full and forever in the throne room of heaven as angels, elders, creatures, every creature on earth and under the earth, in the sea, proclaim that the lamb who was slain, he's worthy. It was by his own blood that the lamb ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he's made them a kingdom and priest to our God. What a better story because it's true. 
It's this truth that's at stake when we share Jesus. So with joy, we welcome criticism or worse in order to spread the news about the lamb who was slain in order that he might receive all honor and glory and blessing forever. Amen. Father, we, we ask that you would press this truth deep into our hearts and minds that we would be a people who are led by our doctrine and our theology, by the truths that you show us in your word that you have saved a people and that we are to add nothing to the work of Jesus Christ, but to say to everyone freely, come, come and see. Father, give us joy in in sharing Jesus, whether our our critics are, are silenced or whether they confess their sins and repent. Father, you you call us to share the news of your son. So empower us, please, by your spirit to do what you command. And it will be with joy and satisfaction that we share the name of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.